Your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17, and uh, let's just read verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city holy given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and spend some time around your word, to continue our study in the book of Acts this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would take now as we consider the passage before us, that Lord, you would speak to each of our hearts through your word. And pray, Lord, that Lord, you would challenge us, that you'd meet us where we're at, that you would refresh us through your word, that, Lord, we would see you, and Lord, we pray that you would just uh, enable me now as I preach, that, Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, that, Lord, it would be only what you'd have me to say. May you be honoured, may you be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> of course, if you remember... I know it's a long time ago, but Acts chapter 17 began with Paul and his missionary team coming to the city of Thessalonica. Okay, if you remember there, they, they entered into the synagogue and they preached Christ unto the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles. And, and there was a response, but mainly amongst the, the Gentiles, amongst the Greeks. They were the ones who responded and uh, were saved. And then the unbelieving Jews uh, responded to that by stirring up trouble. It says in verse 5 that they hired lewd fellows of the baser sort. So they hired some thugs, basically, to stir up trouble against Paul and Silas and Timothy and to basically get them kicked out of the city. Okay, and if you remember, they, they went looking for Paul, but they couldn't find him, so they arrested Jason instead. Okay, and Jason obviously had been seen with Paul. Perhaps they were meeting in Jason's house. Um, whatever the reason was, they grabbed Jason instead and arrested him. <clears throat> and eventually Jason was let go on bail, if you like, uh, on the condition that Paul and his team would leave town immediately. And so we read at the verse 10 there, it says that the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. Okay, so they left in haste from Thessalonica and they went to Berea, this small town that's out of the way. And in Berea, they were met with a totally different response, weren't they? They were met with a, a group of people who were ready to receive the truth. A group of Jews who were ready to hear the message. They were ready to hear it and to test uh, Paul's message against the scriptures. To test and see whether these things were so. And so as a result, many of the Bereans got saved and a, a great work takes place there. Things are going well until the Jews from Thessalonica catch up with Paul and they cause trouble once again and so Paul has to leave in haste and he travels 500 kilometers to the south to the city of Athens just read there verse 14 <clears throat> uh, we'll start in verse 13 sorry it says but when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea they came thither also and stirred up the people and then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. 
and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. <clears throat> and so you have Paul now, he's travelled all the way down south on his own, uh, or with companions, but he's travelled leaving Paul and, uh, sorry, Silas and Timotheus. They've stayed in uh, Berea there for the time being, and Paul is now in Athens on his own. And that's where we pick up the passage this morning, okay, with Paul in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. You know, Athens doesn't really seem to have been the next place on Paul's list, if you like, okay, because there's a, there's a great jump of space in between, isn't there? Between uh, Berea and Athens, he's covered 500 kilometers, missed a lot of towns in between. So it doesn't really seem to have been the next place that he was thinking of heading to. But, you know, as he waits in the city for Silas and Timothy to join him, you know, he quickly develops a burden for the souls of the people. He quickly develops a, a burden for the city of Athens. And so this morning as we consider uh, Paul's ministry in the city of Athens, I want us to begin by looking at the city itself, the city of Athens. And so that's our first point this morning, the city of Athens. Just read there again verse 16. <clears throat> it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, Athens was a, an ancient city. Even by the time Paul arrived on the scene, it was already a thousand years old. So it's an ancient city. It was conquered by the Romans in 146 BC. But the Romans were so impressed with uh, Athenian culture and so impressed with the learning that was taking place there that they, they basically left the city alone. Okay, they left Athens to run itself. They left it as a free city. Okay, we've talked about free cities before. These, these cities that the Romans basically let govern themselves. Okay, they're still under the Roman emperor, but they were allowed to govern themselves. Okay, and Athens was one of these cities. <clears throat> and the Roman emperors over the years, they invested large amount of, amount of money sorry, in the city of Athens to repair buildings and to build new ones okay so they liked it so much the architecture and everything the romans actually added to it you know while athens was not the capital city of the province of achaia that belonged to corinth okay corinth which is the next place he goes that was the the capital city in achaia it was without doubt the most prestigious city in all of greece okay it was the most prestigious city in all of greece you know, it's a city that's famous for being the cradle of democracy or the birthplace of democracy. It's known as a, a cultural, <coughs> excuse me, an intellectual center of the world. Even in its day, it was known as that. You know, it was famous for having a, a, a university there. It was famous for its beautiful buildings. You know, it was also a city that loved philosophy. You know, you think of the the great philosophers, the secular ones, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all of these ones called Athens home, okay, and there's others as well. They all called Athens home. It was the city of philosophy. And by the time Paul arrives on the scene, the city is now in decline, okay? It's, it's sort of had its heyday and it's starting to now decline. But it was still recognized as a center of culture and education, and indeed, as we'll see, it was still a city devoted to philosophy. Verse 21 hints at that. It says in verse 21, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell 
or to hear some new thing. This was what they loved to do, to sit and to talk about new things, to hear something new, philosophy. This is what they loved. This was the Athenian culture, the Athenian way of life, their chief pursuits. But you know, Athens was also a major uh, centre of pagan religions. It was a pagan city. You know, Paul himself saw this truth as he enters into Athens. You know, you can imagine Paul's wandering through the streets of Athens. And in verse 16, it declares that Paul saw the, the city wholly given to idolatry. Paul sees this for himself. As he's wandering the streets of Athens, he sees these idols. He sees the temples. Everywhere Paul looks, this is what he's seeing. Idolatry. You know, one commentator wrote this. He said it was said that there were more statutes of gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? More statutes of gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. And in Athens, it was easier to meet a god than it was to meet a man. And the truthfulness of that statement becomes evident when we understand the population of the city of Athens was about 10,000 people. But there were 30,000 statutes of gods in the city. It's incredible, isn't it? 10,000 people, but there's 30,000 statutes to these gods, these Greek gods, false gods. Now, if Paul had entered the city via the western gate, which was the main entrance, it was where the four highways converged. Now, as he entered the city, he would have immediately seen the temple of Demeter with statutes of the goddess and her daughter. As he continued to walk along the road, he would have seen the statue of Poseidon with his trident. Now, as, as he then continued to walk, he would have passed the statutes of the goddess Athena, the gods Zeus, Apollo and Hermes. Elsewhere were the statutes of um, Venus and Diana. You get the point, don't you? Everywhere Paul looks, he's seeing these false gods. Everywhere he turns, he's seen temples. He's seen shrines. He's seen altars, statutes. He sees the city is wholly given to idolatry. And the most prominent of all these temples, of course, was the Parthenon, which sits on top of the, uh, the hill at the center of Athens there called the Acropolis. You have the Parthenon uh, sitting right up there on the top. It's the most famous of all the temples in Athens. And it was dedicated to the, the goddess Athena, which was the, the, the patent god, if you like, of a patron, sorry, god of the city. And you see, this is what confronts Paul. As he's walking through the city, you know, he's a first-time visitor, this is what Paul sees. The city is literally covered in idols and temples. You know, indeed, even today it is. You go to the old city of Athens today, it's still covered in in idols it's still covered in temples but you know today we visit it and we look at it as being great works of architecture don't we you know we we visit it as tourists and that's what we look at we look at all the grand buildings we look at the the the, the idols and we see them as great works of culture and and architecture and and you know great works of art but, you know in paul's day these were places of worship these were places that were sacred to the Greeks. And, you know, Paul saw them for what they were. Paul saw them as being pagan temples and images of pagan deities. 
As it says here in verse 16, Paul saw that the city was wholly given to idolatry. You know, what Paul saw is a city in need of a saviour. And that's the point here, isn't it? You know, Paul's not distracted, is he? You know, he's not distracted by the grandeur of all the buildings. He's not distracted by the architecture. He's not distracted by the culture and about the, by the learning. No, Paul sees the wickedness. Paul sees the idolatry. Paul sees that the people are lost and in need of a saviour. And so Paul is led to stand up and proclaim the truth. And that's our second point this morning. We see Paul's witness at Athens. Paul's witness at Athens. Just read with me verse 16. It says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean. In verse 16 there, it says that his spirit was stirred within him. When Paul is walking through the streets and he sees the city wholly given to idolatry, his reaction is that his spirit is stirred. He's stirred to respond by preaching the truth. Now it seems that Paul's original intention was to sort of wait for Silas and Timothy to catch up. It's like he's, he's waiting for them. But you know, as he's walking through the city, his spirit is stirred and he can't restrain himself. He's like, I can't wait for them to come. I've got to start ministering to the people. The word stirred here is a, a strong word in the Greek. It's related to the word contention back in Acts chapter 15. Just go there. Acts chapter 15 and verse 39. If you remember, this is Paul and Barnabas. Verse 39 there it says, And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed the sun to one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. That word contention is very close in the Greek to this word stirred. Okay? And the contention there is, is this idea of there's this great agitation between them two, this disagreement. There's strong feelings between the two. It's also related to the word translated provoke in Hebrews chapter 10. Just turn over to Hebrews 10 and verse 24. <clears throat> in Hebrews 10 verse 24 it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Provoke, okay, to motivate someone unto something. And so stirred, contention, provoke, they're all related to each other. And basically this word stirred here is a word that speaks about Paul's spirit being aroused and agitated, even angered, if you like, by the blatant idolatry that he sees around him. He is stirred within him. He's an emotional response here by the Apostle Paul. Now, you think about it. Paul has been in many Greek cities, hasn't he? He's been in many Greek cities. And all those Greek cities, they had their fair share of pagan temples. They had their fair share of shrines and, and idols. 
But you know, Athens was on another level, wasn't it? We just talked about how there's 30,000 statutes there. It was on another level altogether. And, and as Paul looks around, it provokes an emotional response. His spirit is stirred. <clears throat> you see, Paul saw their idol worship here as an insult to the majesty of Almighty God. That's what it is. Paul looks at it and he sees that this is against his God, the one true God. And Paul is stirred to respond. And so immediately he feels the urge to preach the truth, to speak out against this wickedness. You know, the prophet Jeremiah, I think, sums up this urge to preach that Paul felt well in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9. We read this, it says, His word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Sums up well that attitude, doesn't it? Jeremiah said, you know, the word of God's in my heart and I can't keep it in any longer. I've got to tell someone. That's the kind of thing here with Paul. Paul is stirred up. There's a burning desire in his heart. The, the word of God is burning within and he has to tell the people. He has to tell them. He has to speak out and proclaim the truth. He can't keep it to himself. And as I was thinking about that this week, you know, Paul's example here, it ought to cause us to ask ourselves the question, you know, are our spirits stirred by the state of our world? You know, are our spirits stirred by the state of our nation? Are our spirits stirred by the state of the town in which we live? You know, if the answer to that is not, that we're not stirred, the question is why not? Why are we not stirred by what we see around us? Why aren't we moved to act why why is the word of god not burning within that we have to say something we have to tell people now the world in which we live is like athens isn't it it's rejected god it's rejected god it's worshiping everything else but god that's the city of athens isn't it worshiping everything else but god well that's the world we live in they worship everything but almighty god they've rejected him now, when we look at the state of the world, it ought to move us with compassion. It ought to move us to want to speak out and tell them the truth before it's eternally too late. It ought to move us to speak out against the wickedness that's taking place. You know, as we go to work, when we work with unsaved colleagues, are we stirred for them? We have a passion for them. As you go to school, are you moved? For the state of your friends, your unsaved friends, on their way to hell, are you moved within? No, even as we go to the shops down the streets and we behold the wickedness and we behold all those people lost and on their way to hell, beloved, are we stirred? Are we moved within? And I think we need to pray and ask God to give us that passion for souls, don't we? And as you read Paul, that was Paul, that was, that was, that was the hallmark of his life, wasn't it? This passion for souls. He couldn't contain himself. Well, we need to pray and ask God to help us to have that passion. To be so stirred by the state of mankind that we want to speak out and proclaim the truth. You know, that's exactly what Paul does here. We read in verse 17 that he immediately goes to the synagogue, synagogue sorry, and he begins to dispute with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Verse 17 it says, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them 
that met with him. <clears throat> yeah, this was his normal customers, and we've looked at it numerous times. He went to the synagogue, first of all, and preached to the Jews and to those who feared God. But, you know, he didn't limit it, limit it sorry, just to the synagogue. It says in verse 17 that he went also to the marketplace. He goes to the marketplace. He's, he's agitated by the city's idolatry. He's ag- agitated by what he sees. And so Paul goes to the very place where he knows he's going to find lots of people. He's going to find lots of people, particularly those who worship these idols. And he goes there and he reasons with them. It says, and in the marketplace daily with them that met with him. He's meeting with people. He's reasoning with them concerning Christ, concerning the scriptures. Now he's probably answering their questions, listening as they ask him questions and responding in kind. You know, the marketplace here referred to, uh, sorry, the marketplace referred to here uh, was located on the northwestern side of the Acropolis, that hill that we said was at the center of Athens. It was on the northwestern side. And the marketplace basically was the center of the Athenian social life. This is where people would hang out. You know, it not only served as a place of commerce, okay, a place to go and buy things, a market, but it was also a forum. It was a, a place where you'd go to be heard. It was a place where you'd go to conduct business, to settle legal matters. This was where the philosophers would hang out. You know, those ones we talked about earlier, Plato, Aristotle, they'd hang out at the marketplace to spread their philosophy. You see, it was a place where people would listen. As we said in verse 21, this is what the Athenians like to do. They like to hear something new. And the marketplace was the platform. And so, like the philosophers of the day, Paul goes to the marketplace. And he goes there to reason with the people. Anyone who would listen. He's, he's talking to them. He's answering their questions. You know, it doesn't take long for the philosophers of the day to hear about this new thing that Paul is teaching in the marketplace. And so they themselves seek out Paul. And they probably even debated with him. It says in verse 17, oh, sorry, verse 18, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. It doesn't take long for them to find him, these two groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. It says that they encountered him. The word encountered here is in the imperfect tense, and so it implies that they encountered him on numerous occasions, okay? It's not just that they ran into him once. It's the idea that they've been running into him daily. They've been meeting with him. They've been debating with him, talking with him. So we have these two different schools of thought, these two groups of philosophers meeting with the Apostle Paul, listening to him and probably debating with him. Now the Stoics and the Epicureans, they were the two major competing philosophies of the day. Both of them sought to explain uh, the nature of human existence in order to help people cope with a world that was suffering. The Epicureans, they were the disciples of a man named Epicurus. He lived from uh, 341 to 270 BC. And so this is a fair time after that, isn't it? So his teachings have stayed around for quite a while. The Epicureans, they were essentially materialists. And their goal in life was pleasure. It was pleasure. For some, pleasure meant that it was 
you know, grossly physical. But to others, it meant a life of refined serenity. You know, a life free from pain, a life that was free from anxiety. It was a life of pleasure. You know, they believed that the gods took no interest in human affairs and therefore the worship of gods was mere superstition. So basically, they lived as atheists. They didn't care one bit for any god or gods. They lived as atheists, living for pleasure. You know, eventually this philosophy degenerated into a sensual view of happiness. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. That is the Epicurean philosophy. That's where it came from. It came from them. And the Stoics, on the other hand, had uh, got their name from the Stoa, which was a covered walkway where their leader used to teach them. It was a man by the name of Zeno. And he taught around the exact same time, 340 to 265 BC. So they both were on the scene at the exact same time, teaching their same, uh, their different philosophy. But the Stoics, they were pantheists. Okay, so in other words, they believed that God was in everything and that God was everything. They were pantheists. And their emphasis was on personal discipline and on personal self-control. If you like, it was very similar to the Pharisees. A life of discipline, okay? Being good. Okay, that was their, that was their way. And pleasure to them was not good, but neither was pain evil. Okay, they sort of didn't count either as being something to seek after or avoid. The most important thing in life to them was to follow one's own reasoning and be self-sufficient. It was all basically about yourself, wasn't it? And so you can see where this philosophy led. It led to a life of pride. Okay? It led to pride. It basically taught men that they didn't need the help of God. They had to be self-sufficient. And so you can basically boil it down to this. The Epicureans said, enjoy life. The Stoics said endure life. That was their two philosophies. And these are the two groups that now meet with Paul. And in verse 18, we see that they respond in two different ways. Verse 18, it says, And then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a set of forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So there's two responses here. One group responds by ridiculing the Apostle Paul and his teachings. They basically call him a babbler. They say he's a babbler. The word babbler here in the Greek literally means a seed picker. It was used to refer to a bird that would pick up seeds. Okay? And so they're calling him a seed picker. And basically it was a piece of Athenian slang it was a term used for someone who picks up bits and pieces of information from others and then tries to pass it off as being their own and that they understand what they're talking about. And so you can see why they're ridiculing Paul here. They're saying, you're just a seed picker. You've picked up bits and pieces of information and you're trying to pass it off as if you know what you're talking about, but you don't really know anything, Paul. That's what they're accusing of here, uh, Paul of here. And so it wasn't a very flattering term, was it? For, you know, what is essentially the, the church's greatest missionary and theologian, they're calling him a seed picker. The second group is confused, if you like, but they're interested. They're confused by what he's teaching, but they're, they're interested. Their, their interest has been 
pricked. They want to know more. It says in verse 18 at the end there, it says, He seemeth to be a set of forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they're confused by what he's teaching. They don't really understand it. They don't really get where he's, where he's getting at. You know, to them, Paul's philosophy sounded alien or foreign. You know, they're Greeks. It's completely contrary to everything they've ever been taught, everything they've ever, ever thought about the existence of God or gods for them. It's totally contrary, isn't it? You know, they would have considered the preaching of the cross foolishness. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. We'll start in verse 22, it says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. You see, to the Greeks, this whole idea that someone would come, that God, God the Son, would come to earth, he'd go to the cross and die for the sin of mankind, that was foolishness to them. It was a foolish philosophy, a foolish idea. And indeed, the idea of the resurrection, which Paul was teaching, because it says there that he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection, the idea of the resurrection would have sounded completely ludicrous. You see, the Greeks considered the body to be evil. And that the soul wanted to be free from the body. And so for Paul to suggest a physical resurrection of the body, that goes against centuries of Greek thought, doesn't it? It goes completely against everything they've ever thought about the body, about man and the soul. And so we have some who outright ridicule Paul, and we have others who are interested, but they're confused. And so in order to investigate this new doctrine further they take paul to the areopagus to stand before the council just read there verse 19 and they took him and brought him unto areopagus saying may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is thou brought bringest certain strange things to our ears we would know therefore what these things mean so they bring him to areopagus to stand before the council. Okay, now, Areopagus here was Mars Hill. As it's called in verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Okay, this is another name for the, the same place. Okay? And basically, the, there was a council here that met at Mars Hill. And the council was responsible for watching over both religion and education in the city of Athens. They were responsible for it all. And so it's natural that they bring Paul to the council to present his new doctrine, his teaching that he's brought to town. You know, basically, Paul is invited here to come to Mars Hill and present the truth to a council of men. That's what he's invited to do. Now, there's no indication here that Paul has been arrested. There's no indication that he's on trial. It seems like it's just an invitation. Come and Come and speak to the council. Come and speak so we might learn of thee more. In verse 33, we see that at the end of his address, Paul is free to leave. It says, so Paul departed from among them. After he addresses the council, he's, he's free to walk away. So he's not arrested here. He's not on trial. He's simply given an invitation to come and speak. Now, what a wonderful opportunity Paul is given. He's basically given a platform, isn't he? to stand up and to preach before these pagans, 
something they've never heard before, the truth of the gospel. And next week we'll go on and we'll consider Paul's address on Mars Hill. We, there's no way we could do that this morning as well. We'd be here forever. And so next week we'll consider Paul's address before the council there on Mars Hill. But you know, as we close this morning, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that the two philosophies that Paul faced are the two prevailing thoughts still today. Let's think about it this week, the Epicureans and the Stoics. This is still the prevailing thinking of man even today. You know, we have people with the attitude like the Epicureans that life is all about pleasure. You know, their attitude is eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we may die. There's no concern for God. There's no regard for God. They don't care what he thinks. They're atheists essentially and they live like that, live for pleasure. That sums up a lot of mankind, doesn't it? Epicurean way of life, living for pleasure. But you know, on the other hand, we have people like the Stoics who believe the most important thing in life is to follow their own reasoning and to be self-sufficient. You know, they're, they're people who are full of pride at how good they are. How good they are and they believe they don't need God. We have people like that too, don't we? People we meet. They, they think they're really good. They're full of pride in themselves. And when you give them the gospel, they go, it's for someone else, not me. I'm good. I'm, I'm a good person. They're self-sufficient. They're, they're living by their own reasoning. Now, these are the attitudes of the people in the world today, the attitude of the people we meet. You know, as we seek to witness to them, as we seek to give them the truth, you know, we're going to be met with the same responses that Paul faced, aren't we? We're going to be met with some who ridicule us. They ridicule us because, you know, why would you want to do that? Just live for pleasure, live for yourself. Why would you want to live for God? Why would you want to acknowledge God? They'll ridicule us. But then you'll have others who are interested, but they're confused. And they, they don't see it as applying to them. Their ears are pricked, but they don't really see their need of the Savior. Now, there will, of course, still be some who hear, understand the truth, and receive it, and praise God that the gospel still works in the hearts of men. But, you know, the reality is we're going to face opposition. There's going to be responses that are varied, aren't there? You know, we need to pray that God will help us, that God would stir up our spirits as Paul's was. Stir up our spirits to have a burden for souls and that God will give us the courage to boldly proclaim the truth no matter the opposition and no matter the response. You know, even if the response is a negative one, we still have to proclaim the truth, don't we? Unto the world that is lost and dying it's on its way to hell. Let's pray that God would stir up our spirits today. Give us a passion for souls. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> and Lord, the more we look at Paul and his missionary journey, the, the more, Lord, it uh, puts us to shame, in a sense, for our lack of passion for souls. And Lord, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us, that you'd stir up our spirits, Lord. That, Lord, as we see the state of the world, that, Lord, we would have a, a burden for the lost. That we would be offended by the wickedness around us so much so that we have to stand up and proclaim the truth and lord i pray that no matter the response you would help us to be faithful you would give us the courage you give us the words to say lord even this week as we go forth into our our lives and the people we meet lord give us the courage to proclaim the truth we put we pray bless now as we close we praise things in jesus name amen <clears throat>